This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. When I talk to undergrads who are pre-med, if they're in a major that is more obscure, it's one of the first questions I'm asking them Mm. about. It's so interesting to talk to somebody who maybe went a little bit further off the beaten path. I came from a more conservative religious background. Mm. As a healthcare professional, you have an obligation to treat the people who are in front of you. Every physician has a right to step away if it's something that they're not comfortable with. And I feel like if we lose that in medicine, we lose a lot of our ethics. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, the show that gives you an honest look at medical school. This is a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, a veritable who's who of undergraduate medical education. Say hello to M1 Matt Engelken. Howdy. MD, PhD student Riley B. and Bush has arrived. Hello there. Over here, we've got MD, PhD, PhD, soon to be MD. Is that right? Are you a PhD? Not yet. I haven't defended yet. So PhD with an asterisk. Okay. Yeah. And soon to be MD, Aline Sanduk. And M4, soon to be MD, (laughs) Madeline Cusimano is here. Countdown one week from today. I don't like it. That's crazy. I mean, I like it for you. I like it for you. I don't like it for me that, that you're leaving Madeline. You know, I am very mixed feelings. I'm, I don't know. I'm a very sentimental person. So I'm just like finding myself driving around Iowa City and just being like, oh, I'm going to miss this or I'm going to miss that person. And you're going to cry. Are you going to um, cry when you leave? I don't, I don't know if I'll cry at graduation. I feel like I don't know. I cried alone in my car while driving through the cornfields of Iowa the other day because I was just feeling sentimental about leaving this state. But that's fine. You cried. I'll probably cry when like I'm moving out, but maybe not at graduation. I feel like that'll be a joyous occasion. Do you have a favorite thing about Iowa City that you'll miss? Big Grove. (laughs) That's a great choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I just like played board games there like all night Wednesday night. It was it's one of my favorite places. It's a good pick. Not a sponsor, but... (laughs) Hashtag. Reach could, out. Could be. Reach out. Now, to all you out-of-state listeners, there's people here that think Iowa is, in fact, worthy of being sad about leaving. <laughs> I think that is, that's noteworthy, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, well, I guess I'll have to get used to this idea that, you know, after 19 years of working at the Carver College of Medicine, I guess I'll, at some point I'll get used to the idea that people leave. Yeah. It's the circle of life. Damn it. I also have, I, one thing I have gotten used to <laughs> is the fact that, and I don't know if I'll leave this in or not, but one thing I have gotten used to is the fact that, you know, to a certain extent, you M4, graduating M4s are just so happy to put us in your rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it's bittersweet. Like, there's so, so much about happy. medical school that I'm like ready to just move on yeah. from. Yeah. But, I mean, it's a very formative part of your life, a part of becoming a doctor. Like all my firsts in the healthcare field happened at this hospital. And 
some people are more sentimental about those things than others. I had, I would say on the scale of one to 10, like my, the needle tips way more positive experience at Carver College of Medicine specifically. So I think that's notable. The, this was, a, you know, this is, I was talking about this yesterday uh, or the other day with Kate, because, you know, we, we, at this time of year, we, we put on all these ceremonies and all these little, little recognition things for our graduating seniors. And um, I always get the distinct impression that a group of them would be just as happy if we did not do that. I mean, they're happy to get the recognition. They're happy to get it something on their, on their CV. They're happy to get recognition at graduation. But I think to some extent, there's a group of people who is just like, you know what? I, I'm done Mm -hmm. with this place and I get it. I totally get it. So anyway, to those people, it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. Take care of yourselves. Love you. Super over it. Michalina called the SCP listener line seeking a little help on her path to medical school. Shall we hear what Michalina has to say? Here we go. Come on, you guys. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right on. Hi, my name is Michalina. I am a student transferring in my junior year. I was a psych student, but I took a year and a half-ish off because of COVID and being pregnant. And I struggled a lot to pass my classes that last semester before leaving school because of COVID and being pregnant. I am switching to biology because it is faster, but I'm interested to know if because I have a vested interest in pathology, it would be more worth it to do a degree in toxicology, which is also something I'm more interested in, or if it's worth it to just go through faster and finish the biology degree because it's more applicable to the credits I currently have. I'm also curious to hear if anyone that you have on the show today worked full-time while they were in medical school, as I work full-time as an anesthesia tech, and my job will continue to pay for me to go to school so long as I continue to work there, which would mean that I would no have no further loans for my undergraduate. Thank you so much, and I love the show. So let's start with... I guess worries about your your last semester and COVID and your degree and all that kind of stuff because I feel like there's a few questions there. So first, I did talk with our admissions expert Rachel Ahern about this question. Rachel um, has been on the show a few times, so she says, "I first understand that schools like CECOM are making allowances for dips in grades due to COVID. At least ours, our school is. You know, they can see when you took your." you know, what your, what your GPA was, what time of year. And they are aware that, you know, COVID messed with a lot of people's plans in many ways, including grades. So if you quote unquote, just passed those that semester, you're probably cool. Um, Also your pregnancy during that time is a factor that we would also be taking into account. I think third that, you know, you did struggle, you, you said, but you did pass those classes. So uh, well done. I think that's amazing given the circumstances you're in, you know, and your full-time job as an anesthesia tech is a huge plus. All those things should be and can be expressed in your application. They show grit and determination. I think that's working full-time, being in school, 
being, I don't know if you were starting a family or if you already had a family, but either way, there's a lot going on there that will be taken into account. I think just based on the short summary that we got, like there's so much to be gleaned from all of that. Like regardless of like how much she struggled at the time, I think really spinning that in a way to show grit and determination, like you just said, Dave, is more than enough to have a really positive like medical school application. And I think going to the like major thing, I think it just depends on what her goals are. Like if her goals are to get to medical school as soon as possible, then maybe the biology degree is fine because as far as becoming a pathologist in the future, I think when you're applying to residency, I mean, maybe the toxicology undergrad would distinguish you a little bit. But at that point, they care more about what you do in medical school Mm -hmm. than what you did in undergrad. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about, oh, my future career as a pathologist, then I think maybe you're looking a little bit too far ahead and you never know what's going to happen in medical school. You could find something else that strikes your interest. But if it's like what's getting you through school now and something that you really want to add to your medical school application, I think the toxicology degree is fine. But as far as concerns for like finances and time, the biology degree, especially with everything that they've told us about their application would be adequate. Yeah. I mean, her her job is mm-hmm. is paying for her undergraduate. So if she mm-hmm. did switch to toxicology my impression there is that that's not a problem of money but you're just you're just time is also time money. yeah i mean you're just you know putting off graduation maybe mm-hmm. a little bit to to get there either of those paths seem totally cool to me yeah i think i would add as far as the toxicology goes i think there's often the decision that pre-meds have to make which is which major do you want to go to and mm-hmm. i know i didn't necessarily wrestle with this because i ended up choosing later in my college career what I wanted to do and I just stuck with the major that I was doing but I do think there's something to be said about pursuing a passion of yours if she's really interested in toxicology like I think there's a really I guess good reason to pursue just something that brings you passion makes you interested in things like that you're going to do much better in those classes than you would do learning about plants in your biology class if you really feel like toxicology is more interesting to you so I don't think the major is as important however time is money you may have to add more credits Mm -hmm. and if you do have a child now that could be an issue based on the time that you want to be spending outside of school so if you have to take extra credits to pursue this passion, then it might not actually be the best scenario. So I do think there's a lot of considerations. And like you had mentioned, like what are her goals? If it's to get out as soon as possible, then maybe biology makes the most sense. But if you think that you might do better by taking classes you're really passionate about, I am all for the path of choosing something that is outside the traditional biology or biomedical sciences Mm -hmm. or human physiology. I think it looks really interesting on an application it's something you can talk to everyone about on your interviews and i think it just gives you a wider scope of knowledge because you're going to learn everything you need to know about biology once you get into medical school so absolutely that's my two cents but good luck with the decision i don't that sounds like a difficult one (laughs) yeah i think going off of that a little bit like depending on the major you go into you might be a little bit further ahead just by having like a background in say pathology or a better biology background i graduated in engineering so my knowledge base going into medical school was not 
large. So it took a little bit of extra work to catch up to the point where I was, you know, passing exams. But at the end of the day, I still had all of the information that I needed to learn given to me in medical school. So mm -hmm. for me, it was a lot more like uh, Riley said about choosing a major that I really like wanted to learn more about and wanted to go to classes and pass classes and like have a interesting and fun time in undergrad as fun as you can have at least and yeah everything that you'll need to know especially like if you want to go into pathology or whatever down the line you'll learn all that stuff in medical school we get an insane amount of pathology in our didactics yeah and, and i want to be clear it does not matter what you again no it, it does not matter what you study in undergrad mm -hmm. what matters is whether you enjoyed it and whether you can talk about it in a way that indicates your passion for it or your just your enjoyment of it when you're doing your interviews someday. I will anecdotally add that when I talk to undergrads who are pre-med, if they're in a major that maybe is more obscure in the pre-med track, it's one of the first questions I'm asking them mm -hmm. about. If they say, I'm, I'm majoring in let's just say toxicology in this example. The first thing I would say is, wow, toxicology, how did you choose that? Mm -hmm. And that is always my first question when I'm meeting with undergrads and I'm not even interviewing them. But I think as humans, that is, it's so interesting to talk to somebody who maybe went a little bit further off the beaten path. Right. So that yes. goes to Dave's point, which our is to brains say- are, like, Our brains are used to picking out things that are different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you might be able to speak with it, uh, speak about it with more passion. I always found that- was a huge plus of me having done a major that was kind of alternative to what other students has do had done is I was really passionate about it. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time in my major in undergrad and I spoke with vigor about it. And I think people could sense that excitement because vigor. vigor. <laughs> I think that's the point is they want to see that you're excited about that and you can take that excitement and apply it to medicine. So, yeah, don't worry so much about which do what fits best with your life at this stage. It doesn't really matter. We have addressed working during medical school before on the show a few times. I'm wondering, now that I re-listened to that question, was she asking about working while she's finishing out this degree? So, I mean, she's going to, I think she's going to work while she finishes out this degree. I think she's been doing that. Okay. Because she's been was, in anesthesia tech. Could she get the anesthesia tech to also pay for her medical school? Is that the idea? I, I think she wanted to know about working full time during medical school. That's what I thought. Just too. because, okay. or because she has a family and because, you know, like maybe because she didn't want to take on more student loans. You know, she already, you know, she already has this essentially, you know, quote unquote free undergrad experience and she wants to know if she can okay. you know, sort of keep that going during medical school mm. working full-time having a young kid being in medical school sounds like sounds like a rough road to me it sounds like she already has a full-time job i mean <laughs> being a multiple parents, full -time jobs. multiple yeah. full-time jobs what do you right. guys think of this idea about working full-time is it in, i think it's i think that's one of the yeah. few things i say is a hard no in yeah. medical school uh -huh. is working full time. Yeah. We've talked a lot about different creative ways that people can earn extra income. I think people work do work way more often than I thought. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a classmate who was a cert I can't I might have even talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, but who's a server at a local restaurant here. Oh yeah, because she likes it. Yeah, she loved it. And she would just do Sunday nights only. They loved her, so you know, it was way beyond the minimum that they would normally allow an employee. Mm -hmm. She just do Sunday night. She she stopped 
kind of when things got really intense and then COVID happened so that but then like fourth year slowed down you don't have as much requirements and she's she's like probably working 25 hours a week oh, wow. at this yeah. point because it's M4 year and M4 year is pretty chill here mm-hmm. yeah I think another thing to mention is I know um, obviously going to medical school for free would be awesome we have a couple MSTP students on the podcast right now that are having that experience, but also it is a lot of work to work a full-time job and do medical school. I kind of agree with Madeline in saying it's nearly impossible, but also like loans can happen. And once you have like the physician salary, a lot of those problems will go away, but overworking yourself in medical school can just lead to burnout down the line and that's a scary thought to have there's a i mean the really important thing here is your kid mm-hmm. i think and i mean no judgment in saying that you you know why are you why are you even considering this you have a child that's not what i mean i i just mean that you know if you work full-time and you're going to medical school i guarantee you that you're going to miss out on important moments and i wasn't even your, thinking about the child i was just thinking about robbing yourself of the experience of going to med school right like yeah. all the residents i talked to reflect back on their med school years as like one of the best times of their lives you know really bonding with their colleagues like exploring their health interests doing projects stuff like that and all of that i don't think would be possible if you're working and also raising what is sounds like a very young child, not yeah. like a teenager that can mm-hmm. clothe and feed itself, yeah. but needs constant attention. Yeah, I think you can make some very smart like I know it's like great to have goals of having almost no debt and like people from different socioeconomic background that might be more important than others. But there are ways, especially working very closely with your school's financial advisor, I'm a very big proponent of our school's finance advisors. Like there are ways that you can smartly navigate medical school to kind of minimize the amount that you're borrowing and then just making really good plans for repayment and Mm -hmm. all of that in the future. And I think, again, being more well, aka having less things to juggle during medical school, you know, since family, the act of being in school. And I really liked what Aline just said about Being able to like, oh, there's this really interesting project, like maybe an advocacy project that you get really passionate about and that might inform your future career or help your residency application or, you know, whatever. It'll give you a little bit more freedom to balance all that. And I'd argue, too, the the medical students that seem to have the most enriching experience see medical school as a full-time job in and of itself. They often see it as like, this is my purpose and this is what I'm doing and I'm going to enrich it with extracurriculars and pursuing my interests. And odds are you're probably working 40 hours a week between attending lectures and studying and attending interest groups. I think you're probably working arguably more than 40 Mm -hmm. hours a week a lot of the time, especially when you're in clinical rotations. So I think seeing it as that so i do agree that like the monetary aspect would be great i think if we all could have jobs and a little extra income i think a lot of us would do it however in order to kind of enrich your experience the most like i would say do all you can in the time that you will commit to medical school and then take that time off when you get to spend time with your children when you get to spend time outside of medicine i think that is arguably the most important part for me as a physician in training is I need adequate time outside of medicine 
to recoup, to relax, to decompress from the day. And that would be really difficult working full time the entirety of medical school. I think you underestimate how much free time you need to decompress once you're in this field. Oh, yeah. I yeah. I know that not everyone has this luxury, but I highly enjoy my free time in pursuing my passions of music and sports and just hanging out, going to Big Grove. Um, like being a person. Um, bulging in my pocket is a check from the establishment. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, wow, that would be a lucrative sideline. Right? Going on medical school podcasts, <laughs> to beef up promoting local, promoting local businesses, but not, telling, but not telling Dave <laughs> about it. I want to add something like to the already great points I think everyone made. I want to piggyback on something Madeline said about curating an application that makes you really competitive for residency. That's something I didn't think of. I was just thinking of like, like from the selfish perspective of like, enjoy, you know, the experience, like really immerse yourself, which is also valuable. But when you have diverse experiences in med school you're generating currency of a different kind you're you're gonna look so much more interesting because like the thing i hear about applying to residency is that like everyone's qualified everyone's a great candidate yeah, they all they're, got through med school you know right they all got good grades they you know they're they're all by all indications adequately prepared to be good doctors it really comes down to like do we like this person like do we want to hang out in the middle of the night on saturday with this person can we stand them and i think the way that they glean that is from you know from an interview but before getting to the interview is just like your application and if Mm -hmm. all your application contains is i went to school it's not to say that you don't deserve a spot but it's going to be a lot harder i think for residencies to pick you because they're just not going to get a sense of who you are as a person and say you know her interests change in medical school like she no longer you know like is interested in pathology it's something else then it's like i mean that that was so stressful about picking a um specialty was like oh well i've done all these things for this and now i you know and a lot of it should apply because again most physicians that i meet like don't expect you to have have your specialty picked by the first or second year but then there's some specialties that kind of double standard you and expect that so it's it's there's just a lot of mental energy that goes into kind of choosing your life forward and to have a little bit more freedom to kind of adjust and pivot and diversify your medical school experience is going to be better for an application overall and and do a lot of soul searching at the same time like that takes time there is one aspect of this that i don't think we address enough on the show which is the risk involved in in entering medical school i don't know how often this happens but some people you know spend a year and a half two years maybe even two and a half three years and realize I can't do this. Mm-hmm. This isn't for me. And then, you know, it's not like there's no there's no money back guarantee, unfortunately, no. with this path. And so now you're maybe you know, hundred and something thousand dollars. You in don't debt. hear enough from people who started and then stopped and then what they did with that because it doesn't happen often, but Mm-mm. it does happen. It does happen. And. And so maybe if I had to sort of extend my my understanding or if I had to if I had to prognosticate what the what the actual basis of this question is, maybe that fear that 
I'm going to get into this and realize it's not for me. And then I'll have sunk a whole bunch of money and into, into this that I can't repay or at least can't repay mm-hmm. easily. I don't have an easy answer for that. It's that's a tough we thing live, to think about. We live in a society that's driven by debt. Like, I don't know. I, there's just not a lot of people out there that don't have any debt. Everything in this country is just supremely expensive from cars. Anything worth having you're, mm-hmm. is only getting more expensive. You're going to have to borrow some amount of money. And she's, in fact, like, it's mind-blowing that she's not going to have any college debt. There's a lot of people who come to med school. Yeah, that's a big that's a big that's step a up right there. Huge one. Like yeah. she, that's already a dramatic advantage I think over her colleagues, but like a lot of people in the MSTP really worry about that cuz a lot of them went to like very expensive schools and like yeah, they're not paying for med school, but now their college debt is just climbing and climbing and climbing and they're not doing anything about it, you know, and they're freaked out. So She's already, she may not realize it, but she's already in a vastly better spot than I think most matriculants. I don't think it's, you know, I'm I'm not going to claim that, you know, it's not something to think about. I think another thing. That's, that's, you got to think about it. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that we could mention is there are a lot of people, it sounds like um, you're in your junior year, so you've probably already decided that you are planning on going to med school. But there's a lot of people that want to go to med school and then decide not to down the line. And so also choosing a major based on something that you could see yourself doing forever is a good thing um, to have in the back pocket. Mm -hmm. Like I know I always thought that I was going to go to medical school, but at the same time, I knew that down the line, if I decided I didn't want to go to medical school, I had a lot of options with my major and Mm -hmm. I had a lot of different career paths I could choose and love. And so that was also a big part of it, which is like, if I either like don't get into medical school or like decide I don't want to go to medical school or be a doctor anymore, will I be happy with the life I've made for myself? So it's kind of both ways where if you want to go to medical school as soon as possible, then biology sounds like a great option um but if you think that toxicology will be great both for like we said earlier like just caring about your classes and loving your undergrad experience more also just like if you could see yourself getting a job that features toxicology if Mm -hmm. you decide that medical school is not for you then it's a really great choice to choose toxicology even if it takes a little longer I think that's a great point. And one that I often emphasize to a lot of people, I don't think it's a catch-all. I guess it's not the catch-all answer because I wouldn't recommend, like we both did engineering, I wouldn't recommend that for every pre-med because it's... It's hard. If you haven't heard, it's very difficult. (laughs) It's very difficult. But you come out with skills that are greatly sought after, problem solving, and it's widely applicable to different markets, to different jobs. And That Mm -hmm. was the advice that I got from my parents in high school when I was thinking, oh, I might want to do this pre-med thing and had a dad who was like, maybe you, I don't feel like you feel strongly enough about this and you feel really strongly about this engineering thing. Let's do that because you could do both of them. So this is advice to maybe someone out there who's thinking about what they want to do. Choose based on, you could consider, I don't want to say choose based solely on what will give you the best job because Medical school is also super exciting and you might want to get through as fast as possible. But if you're not so sure, consider which major might give you the widest net that you could apply to future jobs. That doesn't make you a bad pre-med. That just makes you a practical human in their 20s trying to make sure they have all their bases covered. (laughs) So just remember that it might help some people. It might not help 
others who just feel really strongly about exactly what they want to do. I was not one of them. Here I am. Feel strongly now. However, <laughs> I don't know what residence you want to go into. So therefore, I am back to zero. <laughs> I think another thing kind of on that as well is that a lot of your non-traditional um, paths for like majors will give you really unique experiences and unique skill sets. Like I know Raleigh brought up problem solving and like critical thinking is a huge thing that I know I'm looking forward to using in like clinics and once I become a physician, but there's other things like in a lot of like the the fine arts or the visual arts, you have your like creativity and you're mm. thinking outside the box and like others. I know that there's a few business students and things that have different kind of mindsets that come in and are just as applicable as maybe knowing the Krebs cycle a little bit better. It's worth emphasizing what Riley said, which is like the poor Krebs cycle. <laughs> I know Krebs cycle gets so much shit on the show, and in general from med students because it's just the freaking worst. Pooped <laughs> <laughs> on so much. I have looked at this diagram before, and it's made my eyes cross. <laughs> I get it. So, yeah. as the resident biology major here, I freaking loved biology. I did not really have a plan B if I didn't go to medical school because. All my career options were physical therapist, PA, physician, potentially nursing. So I was just like, all right, I'm just going down this path, you know. I thought maybe I'd be like a high school, like get my teaching, master's in teaching, be like a high school biology teacher. But also, if you really love biology, a big fear of mine was like, I hated that I was just the classic major pre-med student. But I just made sure to highlight like my passion for it, but also highlight my other interests, too, because I knew that I was like the most common major applying to medical school. Mm -hmm. And that made me a little bit nervous, but it did make my life easier because I had a lot more time. Like I did not like I don't know. I didn't carry like huge loads in undergrad. I saved a lot of time for my extracurriculars, which I feel like really shown through on my application. Stood you you well. That's kind of been my philosophy, I think, just. A common thread was just spend as little time on academics as possible and (laughs) (laughs) diversify my extracurriculars. So, yeah, and I think kind of going off of that, like what you said, even like biology is a standard thing to get into medical school, but showing that you chose the major for something that wasn't just, oh, so I can get into medical school, like. Because that is a very boring answer for the admissions committees. But like if you love your major and love what you do, then that comes across in applications and interviews. Mm-hmm. And that's those are things you can't like lie about. And they're things that make you somebody that's appealing to the admissions committees as well. You know, something we talk about a lot on the show is that when you're applying like what anyway, what CECOM really values is authenticity and passion and Picking biology because it'll be done faster and it'll be cheaper, I think is it's it's a streak for practicality that's going to come across really negatively to admissions committees. Like yeah. right at the outset, you're already thinking about money. You're probably not right for this. Yeah, but I think she's got so many different. I think she's got a different. And I don't think necessarily I think li- that I think, she hates biology too. Like yeah, we didn't true. necessarily yeah. get that from the question. But also, um, I was going to say, I mean, she's got such a different life than. Some other kinds of medical. She's an students. anesthesia yeah. tech. Anesthesia yeah. tech, mom, and a parent. Parent. I mean, that's just. It's, I think it's got. It, it's got to all be taken. I feel like into there should account. be a yeah. spot on the med school application of like hours parenting. Like that's like, <laughs> like you know how you put in your jobs and it's like hours done that. No time off. In my opinion, mm-hmm. that yeah. should be like infinity. infinity. Twenty. Yeah, twenty four seven. Do the days since you 
had the child and then yeah you should just be able to put that on the med school application I know the med school I'd argue that would be the hardest they yeah. do have like is is like is there anything else that you we need to know about you they put that on all the secondaries yeah mm-hmm. so really I would recommend highlighting that you're a parent and like the joys and benefits and like the things you get out of parenting not as in like oh boom me I have to spend a lot of time with my kid sure. but in like a these are ways that makes me an individual applicant or and the struggles that have made you better exactly yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. or what you've recognized about taking care of another human being that is both difficult and highly rewarding seems like it'd be a great thread to go into medicine with yeah agreed so, uh, yeah, let us know how it goes. Damn, we're Make awesome. That was down. all really good advice. <laughs> like, like she object- had a lot of questions let's weaved in there that we had to... Let's take a minute to pat there. ourselves on the back. There we go. <laughs> yeah, th- let us know how it goes. Love to hear more about your journey someday if you have other questions, which you probably will. Definitely. If you we'll, come we'll to CECOM, we have an anesthesia externship where you can work as an anesthesia hey. tech and get paid hey. in your fourth yeah. year. Did not know that. Hey. That's right. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. We are in the midst of our spring 2022 listener drive. We want to bring our message to new people to encourage them during their medical school journey while acknowledging the triumphs and trials. To that end, I hope you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues. If you do, a small token of my thanks, I'll send you one of these acrylic pins I made for you, short coats, and there are three ways you can get yours. Two of them are free just for sharing, or you can buy it for the special reduced price of $3.00. Wow, only $3 three, for the great pin? $3. Incredible. Who hasn't, which, which of you hasn't seen these pins yet? Show the pin. You've all seen these pins. Yeah. I have my pin at home on a bulletin board. There you go. Yeah, head on over to shortcoat.com slash pin to learn how to get yours. I'm so grateful uh, for you out there listening, Shortcoats, and for your support of the show and our goals to bring the truth about medical school into ear holes everywhere. Thank you. <laughs> ear holes. That's a technical term. The medical term. That's right. <laughs> ear hole docs. That's what we call That's them. right. Laryngologists. Ear hole docs. Ear orifices. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why that getting sounds worse. grosser it's for some worse. reason. Yeah. God. Is it an orifice or a foramen? No, it's, it's definitely a, it's an a orifice. meatus, actually, isn't it? Well, there's a meatus. Or is meatus the opening itself? Foramen is like, I feel like a. It has to go through. It's, yeah, it's like a ring huh. that you go through. There's no exit. Thanks for that gesture. As soon as I did that, I was like, I hate, I abort, abort. I was like, no visuals. This is a podcast. podcast. Use your imagination, guys. (laughs) We're, okay, so I want to talk, the other thing I want to talk about today is about the role of discomfort in learning. One of the things this is one of the things that we are thinking about in the Writing and Humanities program lately, how on any topic you'd care to name at the intersections of medicine and society, especially, there can be discomfort about the information that you're being presented. The obvious examples lately are things like how race affects health, termination of pregnancy, transgender medicine. A lot of these things are in the news lately. And I sense, I feel a lot of discomfort lately Mm -hmm. about these topics. But there are probably others that aren't as well known, like how people who are convicted or suspected of a crime should be treated in healthcare, things like that. 
My question to you guys in the studio and to you in the audience, if you want to reach out to us, is how do you respond when you feel uncomfortable about what you're being taught? Mm. This is a really good question. And one Thank we you. were just discussing in our lab the other day oh. in regards to histories of medicine that shed light on really terrible things or why or like certain things in medicine we've only discovered because terrible things have happened mm. a common example is the tuskegee syphilis experiment that we talk a lot about in medical school and it's really hard as a person in medicine to recognize the evil past with which things we learn about came about and i think that's where i feel this like intense discomfort of oh i'm i didn't take a part in that but like you have to acknowledge that as a medical system that i am now taking a part in it comes from that place therefore to say the kind of infrastructure in which those experiments could happen still persists and i you almost have to take it and digest it and say there is probably some of that still in society in our medical system. And then I become overwhelmed by, <laughs> oh my gosh, that is probably there. I have no idea what to do with that information. Yeah, so yeah. that's the feeling I often end up with in going through these conversations of really tough and challenging things. And often, again, I'm from my own example of talking about just kind of the evil pasts of medicine. Like if you ever think about how we got anatomy textbooks, like had to come from somewhere. There's a lot of really screwed up stuff in it's there from of the perspective really... of our current uh, society. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've gotten a lot of knowledge from really messed up things. And how do you take that and sit with it? And then what do you do with it? That's where I get stuck. Mm. What do you do with it? Kind of going off of that as well. I know right now a lot of medical schools are trying to are trying their best to move away from some of those stereotypes, like trying to figure out which diseases are linked by, you know, heritage and ancestry rather than just like race and trying to figure out like if certain populations have a higher risk of disease because of socioeconomic status or if there's actual genetic, genetic like differences in like people that grew up in different areas and so yeah at, at, at one time race was a blunt instrument yes for figuring out like what people are more susceptible to than others because it's basically all we have mm -hmm. and i think that my guess is that and and you know it was kind of the best maybe maybe it was the best information we had at the time i, I don't think know. it's this balance of not being like racially discriminatory but also not being colorblind at the same time mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. You know, recognizing that like unique populations are more at risk. So like whether it's to correct past wrongs or just to be particularly paying attention to certain details while also not profiling people for any reason, whether it's religion, race, socioeconomic status, gender, all yeah. of that. It is interesting, though, when you go through studying for step one and step two and you can't help but answer those questions that you know you know what it is. We've got an eight-year-old African-American boy who has sickling of his red blood cells. You can't, like, they always add it. It's always a parameter. And we teach these as buzzwords. Like, this mm. race aspect is a buzzword for you to get this question correct. 
in going through tutoring, I was a tutor for the MSTP students who had just recently gone through step one. And a lot of the times we had to acknowledge these are step one questions. These are these are not reflective of the actual world of medicine. Mm -hmm. Just because race is a quick identifier on an exam question doesn't necessarily mean that it will be the quick identifier when you're in the clinics. And that was what struck me the most is as I'm doing these questions, I'm the tutor and I want to emphasize this race portion. And that was so hard because I was like, oh, my God, it is a vital part of what they want me to understand is important to this question, yet it feels so icky. Race is a social construct. It is even more of a social construct than any of the other. There are truly no genetic differences between the races. Heritage, I think like Matt said, is exactly right. People who have a longer, you know, lineage originating in Africa are going to have, you know, I'm trying to remember the, like, more resistance to malaria, you know, because malaria was more prevalent in that region than in North America. Mm -hmm. But race is at, like, that's what we're talking about. It it has no relationship or at least there's a relationship that we just didn't do a good job of attributing to something else. Correlation. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Not, not a causation. Yeah. Um, I think going back to Riley's point, I think medicine does... I think a poor job with writing questions because it's not, like mm. obviously racism is like it's in a lot of question stems but there's also a lot of question stems that will highlight things like obesity and type 2 diabetes and like IV drug users that are supposed to be these buzzwords for certain diseases and certain presentations and to remember that like not everybody that uses drugs becomes addicted to drugs or presents a certain way and not everybody with diabetes has these exact same things sure it's a higher prevalence in them but they really like to give us those buzzwords to quickly correlate certain populations with some diseases but when we go into the field, that's really not how everyone presents. And we can go in with biases based on the question stems that are presented to us. So let's talk, though, more about the discomfort part. Has any of you ever in class or in clerkships felt this sense of like, I don't like what I'm hearing or seeing? I think and I what can. did you do with that? I'm going to go first on this. The thing that came to mind immediately is and I'm not trying to sing with you, but seeing as you said the word it got me thinking the very casual use of the word racism and nazism recently is something that i struggle with because nazism refers to like a very specific ideology of a very specific time period targeting a very specific group of people and i don't mean to say that it wasn't wrong obviously but the problem is that when you call something nazism that's not nazism you trivialize the Holocaust and you normalize Nazism. And that's something I'm seeing a lot with racism. It's not racist to say, because, you know, some of the things that they teach us are true, right? Some not related to race, but it, so that's the thing. It's complicated. Someone's heritage or someone's background or the socioeconomic situation they grew up in. There can be a relationship, but I appreciate what Matt is saying, which is, Maybe to like keep an open mind that like that's not 100% the thing it's going to be, right? Like mm -hmm. be open to the possibility that like this is a this could be it, but there's a lot of other things. But I think the quickness with which people jump to calling something racist 
is detrimental to people who've actually suffered from racism. Hmm. And I and not everyone agrees with that. And I and I hesitate to say that. I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of hate mail tomorrow. But the <laughs> thing is it's if you're not saying that, that person is good or bad because of that, if you're merely making an observation, I don't find that racist. But what if that observation leads to errors in I don't remember what type of error, but but le- a negative outcome, a, a negative outcome, because then yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, how do you just? I mean, how well, when you're bi- making that when you're making that. I mean, that- you have different definitions. You have bias. You have discrimination. You have racism, and like I don't know exactly if that exactly fits into what you're saying, but I think bias can lead to racism and all of that. So there's there's narrow mindedness, and you know, I think maybe that's kind of the gen the direction you are leaning yeah nuance yeah kind of and having nuance is hard nuance is really hard so like the example i was thinking of and the person who said told me the story might be listening so i would have to be really careful about what i say about it but they were like on round so they were telling me a story about being on rounds and one of the people on the team being like i don't think this person's from this country i think we should get an interpreter and that person felt that was racist and i was like so the alternative is to not get an interpreter and then put that person at risk for getting worse care to avoid the mere appearance of seeming racist. Like maybe that's not how I would have said it, but that person wasn't saying the stupid immigrant doesn't speak English. We should get an interpreter like they weren't making a value judgment. They were raising the possibility that this person wasn't understanding all of the complex information that was being relayed to them. Therefore, we should preclude the possibility that they'd be harmed by not understanding, by making sure that there's someone in the room who understands. Hmm. I think what you bring up is often where my emotion ends up lying, which is I want so badly to be empathetic toward every patient I ever see. And so I would be so fearful that I am doing the wrong thing by that specific patient. And I'd be so fearful then that by me wanting to do the right thing, Mm. it comes off the wrong way. I was in my clerkship treating a patient who identified as a transgender woman and had recently undergone transition later in life. And I was so worried every time I would step into a room that I would misgender or misidentify Mm. and A lot of it stemmed from the fact that this person's records had not reflected the change yet. Yeah, that's a a real problem. I was filled with anxiety because I wanted to both respect this patient and also filled with anxiety because I felt unequipped with how to relay it to my team. Felt Mm. unequipped with the language by which I should use talking about this patient who for all intents and purposes has a new identity that is not reflected within their chart and Hmm. i wanted so badly to make sure i respected this person's identity and was filled with fear that i would do the wrong thing and i know that if i did and i would apologize and this person would likely be very forgiving but i do think that I almost feel like I'm not I want more to be more equipped with how to have conversations with immigrants, with people who identify as transgender, with people who identify with any identification that they deem. And I just want to make them feel welcome in this world. You know, I think that discomfort that you felt. 
it, you know, I think discomfort is a lot like pain. It is a tra- it is it should be a sign of something that you need to pay attention to, right? Mm-hmm. And I th- and so what you were doing there was exactly that. You know, you you felt a certain discomfort with what you knew and what you understood and what you were seeing and you paid attention to it. I don't think that implies that you are therefore now perfect about how you deal with the world or how you see the world or anything like that. And I think that's also something to pay attention to. You know, you're, you're never going to be perfect about that. Yeah. I think I come from a place too that like I want to recognize those things. I, I, I'm learning and I'm, I try to remind myself I am in the process of learning to and be, you always will be. And I always mm-hmm. will be. And I, I seek out learning what is the best communication for all types of people. I seek that out. And I I guess I hope for kind of in that example of maybe the person asking for the interpreter, I ask for maybe compassion when I do say the wrong thing. And I think it makes a lot of people fearful. And you just want to make sure that we are doing the best by every group of people. Like I genuinely wanted this patient to feel so welcomed by me as a student in a system that has been inherently unwelcoming to her. And I felt like I didn't know how to make her feel as welcomed as she could because it ended up being a systemic issue that like I couldn't handle mm-hmm. as a medical. Yeah, there's nothing myself. you can do about the fact that the chart doesn't yeah. include all the necessary details of this person who that might be medically relevant. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of these kind of themes that we're talking about could be mitigated by just being open to making mistakes and apologizing when you do. Like I had a situation where I was being like very intentional with my language when talking about someone who identified as non-binary and used pronouns they, them, and I, in a text message, accidentally misgendered. So like in (laughs) auditory conversations and all of that, like I felt like I was you know, being appropriate and whatnot. And then it was just like a quick text that I sent out. It's those quick interactions for for gender that I have a big, yeah, it's a big problem for me. It's not a crime. And so, and, and all literally, you know, I started having all this guilt and, and then I, and I was just like, all I needed to do is just say, also, I'm sorry that I misgendered your friend in my previous text message. I've attempted to be very intentional. This was a slip up. Yeah. yeah. Oops. Yep. I mean, they is completely the vast majority of people that I find myself in situations like that where they're like, hey, thank you so much. Most people don't even recognize that they said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think when I think I am more upset when I realize later and have no opportunity have no now have no yeah. recourse. Because I, I can't go back to that. Per- I don't know where they are anymore. Or because I think like how that. I've yeah. mitigated these situations in the past, like um, if I was in your situation with the patient, was just to, like almost not talk at all, mm-hmm. and that's worse. Um, it is worse. Not the yeah. desire to do that. Yeah, the- you're you're letting your discomfort rule. Yeah, yeah, what and that you're is able to do for this person. Worse care. So it's just like oh, almost like not saying their name at all, or just kind of talking about a situation and not including like there are ways that you can get around conversations where you like 
don't make any mistakes, but it makes communication really awkward. It's and it's in an inpatient care situation. It probably makes their patient care worse and more awkward. And so I think that, you know, talking about discomfort, I did not have almost any experience with um, the transgender community before medical school. And so I think the only way to get better is to you know, throw yourself in there and make mistakes at times and then apologize when you're wrong. More direct personal interact. It, practice makes perfect. That's exactly the point. People are going to make mistakes. And it's look, the world is changing really quick. It has changed and it is continuing to change. And sometimes we just don't know the right language. But like what's coming across loud and clear is you can't go wrong when you have authenticity and when you show up an honest desire to be better. Like what well, requires that when you mm. think I don't want to go talk to this patient because I'm afraid of using the wrong language to push past that barrier and to say, no, you know what? I've learned enough. I'm going to go in. I'm going to have compassion for myself when I make mistakes. I'm going to say, I am so sorry when you do make mistakes and you're going to learn from it. And I think that's the hard part is to push past that discomfort and to learn more. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. I think the other discomfort that you can feel is with people that you feel like you cannot agree with how Mm -hmm. they live their lives. People who, or, or, or circumstances that they find themselves in that you judge to be improper. As I said, the, the, you know, the person front, the person who went to prison who now needs healthcare, right? Or I don't know, any, any number of things that you can, that you can unconsciously or consciously judge to be antithetical to your way of living. Mm. I don't think it's, you know, we're, we're all in here, you know, talking about being compassionate and thinking about the other person and all this kind of stuff, which is what you, you know, are, which is kind of the ideal, but you know, some people come to this profession with very little experience outside their own, Yeah, how they, you know, outside how they grew up. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think this, especially in like the first couple of years of medical school, like you have an opportunity to just learn a lot. So if it's lectures about topics that are kind of uncomfortable for you, like, I mean, just take those in and listen. I came from a more conservative religious background. Mm. And so, yeah, I think not all of the things that I learned in medical school were in conflict with my own personal beliefs. But I did feel at times that 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 other perspective isn't always representative, represented in medical school. I'm not saying that I was like conservative politically but I just felt like that there were a lot of things that were one-sided and again like like I said I just had almost no interaction not by means of actively avoiding it but with the transgender community so it was just really a lot of just like learning from ground zero when what you're asking about is like things that you cannot like something that you completely disagree with them. I feel like as a healthcare professional, you have an obligation to treat the people who are in front of you and you can separate that from your personal beliefs. But I also very strongly believe in 
now the ethics term is leaving me right now. Dr. Calgen talks about it. The um, therapeutic alliance. No, it's basically every physician has a right to like, you know, like not to refuse care and like kick someone out of their office, but like to step away if it's something that they're not comfortable with. And I feel like if we lose that in medicine, we lose a lot of our ethics too. So talk a little bit more about that. I think think there's this perception that I'm a doctor. I work for everybody who walks in my door. Yeah, I think and that what you're saying seems to and what you what Dr. Calgen is apparently taught is it's not necessarily the case. Well, I think that there's always referral. OK, so maybe the best option mm-hmm. in that situation is to say, I can't work with you, but I know somebody who can. Yeah, but I just I don't know. This is this is hard because I feel like my thoughts aren't fully formed and I'm like. <laughs> Talking Who's about this. R? I yeah. mean, this is complex. But I, you know, like people, I can't people think get mad very... at these discussions. I think are. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's fair. To it's get hard mad. to have these conversations because the stakes are so high. Yeah, and there are so many people uh, uh, across the political spectrum that are like, if you don't agree with me a hundred percent right now, without question, faithfully, yeah. we're done. Mm-hmm. And they are so unforgiving. And it's not even having a difference of opinions, but merely questioning is now seen as intolerance. And it's very off-putting, mm-hmm. honestly. I think going back to where you're going with that, Madeline, um, is just like, I know the one thing that Dr. Colgen, who for people that don't know, is our ethics professor. One thing that we focused on was like people that might be abusing their opioids their opioid medication. How do you deal with that as a phys- as a future physician? Because on one side, we do want to treat them and we want to make sure that they are as healthy and as like feeling well as possible. But on the other side, like we can't contribute to the opioid epidemic. And so trying to like figure out those boundaries and it's like, do we kick away everybody that like doesn't completely fill our needs? Or like if somebody goes on vacation, can we give them an opioid prescription ahead of the date that they can or does that put risk into it so there's a lot of nuance that i feel like can lead to issues but i know that that was one big thing of like you can turn away people if they're not adhering um, especially if their non-adherence can cause like a bigger issue but what if what if you accept that they are they themselves are imperfect, struggling with something that is difficult for them to, you know, to adhere to. And just allow yourself to have whatever small victories you can, i.e., they came to me. They, they came to me in the first place. That's a tiny mm-hmm. victory right there. Um, in a system that sometimes isn't very forgiving for people who do quote unquote the wrong thing or you're talking about harm reduction and I think harm reduction goes both way it goes always actually Mm -hmm. and I think that's what Maddie is alluding to or or actually kind of outright said of like you're dealing with the patient in front of you and you might hear some things or you yourself express some things that they don't like or they might say things that you don't like but at the end of the day you are the perf- I and I like to take what you're saying maybe a step further is like I am the professional 
it's not about me it's about them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and if you truly disagree with whatever their life choices are and what because i think what's part of what's really difficult for this conversation is like Every specific situation is so different, and yes. this could apply to a broad range. And we're of not things. naming any of them. We're talking yeah. in very unspecific. Yeah. But, so like, yeah. yeah. So if you just like strongly, either morally or just like really even for the good of their own health, disagree with their life choices, like, and if for whatever reason that makes it really hard for you to care for them, and you might have something personal, like your father died from lung cancer and so you have a patient who continues to smoke or whatever you know like it could be anything but I think the bottom line in most situations it's just like you treating them as a whole human being listening to their stories and doing the best that you can is going to make their experience within the healthcare system more positive and therefore they might consider making the choices that you personally think are the best choices for them and for their health in the future like so taking that discomfort examining it mm -hmm. and figuring out what you know not ignoring it not pushing people away not not you know condemning them not pushing the situation away but examining it and acting in a way that is in the best interest of the person in front of you yeah and separating what comes from your yeah your personal experience yeah. versus your overall like life perspective and i thought of it conscientious objection oh, right. is the oh. term i think that that should still exist because if we as physicians don't have autonomy like what you should and should not refuse is a different argument than the autonomy we have as physicians for conscientious objection to exist as a principle that's just my opinion. I think that's one that comes up a lot, actually. And I, I agree. I think however we feel on the issue that comes up, I think people should absolutely have the right to step away from a situation where they don't feel aligned with their values. And I know that's probably, that, I don't think that's a popular opinion. I think that might even be a little controversial, depending on... But again, it goes both. So the problem that I have around a lot of these conversations is that people have this expectation of a courtesy that they themselves don't want to give. So they want a lot of flexibility to exercise, you know, whatever feels right to them, but not for anyone else, just for them. And the problem is either everyone gets to have that right or no one gets to have that right. And I think that's what leads to a lot of discord nowadays. But that's the thing about convictions you don't get to choose when they apply that's why they're called convictions they're your core beliefs and when people pick and choose how to apply their values they're not really values if your values change in order to make something maximally convenient for yourself then i have news for you that's not a core value of yours but what if your values changed because you engaged with that sense of discomfort that's different yeah you know Hey, I had a lot of learning to do and I thought about this and I've changed. So here's the thing. I operate on the belief that fundamentally everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. What we disagree on is method and information. Sometimes we just have different information, but like I really want to believe that deep down as contemptible as some people might seem on the surface, they are doing what they have been raised to believe is the right thing. And we just have different ideas about how, and I don't know if anyone else agrees with that, but I think it's hard when 
the right thing appears to hurt other people. Of course. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully if you're engaging with, with that thing that makes you wonder or that, that, that moment where your brain goes, okay, I don't, is, is that really, I'm not expressing this well on an audio podcast. It's it's so complicated. It like so I can complicated. like I've been sweating for the last ten minutes because I because we're we're talking a little bit in circles, but because and we're not. I, well, the thing the I'm reason we're talking in circles is because I want this discussion to be about the discomfort and what you should do with it. And we're definitely not necessarily uncomfortable right now, right? And we're all definitely <laughs> uncomfortable. And I and I don't necessarily want it to be about the issues mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. But it's really hard to separate those two ideas. Yeah, so to go back to that, I just feel like regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of any issue, like kind of taking the time to listen, having conversations with a diverse thought group, which is really hard to find and really hard to do. I found like there's so many echo chambers like... yeah. In a lot yes. of different ways. And to be um, clear, we've been accused on this podcast of, of being, being an, an echo, echo chamber. Oh, yeah. Yes. And I think we and have I, at I, times. I think to some, to some extent we have. I mean, the, the people who are on this show are the people who happened to sign up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people sign up in groups. Yeah. Other times it's completely random. Which is why I think I we're f- blessed today mm-hmm. to have what I feel like is a variety of viewpoints. But, um, but we, we don't all share get... the same values. Like ultimately, we're all agreeing that we want to do right by our patients. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's so what, I just that's found what unites it us. Helpful to and like this could go wrong, but like I found it helpful to go back and have these conversations in what I consider as a safe space of people who grew up in a similar background to me. Which you could do that and then just never change your views or never consider mm-hmm. other perspectives. But it's for me, it's just like I found that like when I tried to say something that I didn't quite have the terminology for or whatever, that I was shot down and that, you know, my views weren't necessarily accepted. And again, they weren't even necessarily fully formed views. And are you talking, so to be clear, are you talking about the people that you go back to within your... Yeah, or other classmates that had a similar um, background than me. Okay, yeah. yeah, So 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 people who grew up like you or who, you know you're sort of aligned with already yeah exactly and and Mm. the conversations were to like make just a process like Mm -hmm. these really complicated topics that have a lot of weight in society so in a sense you caused them some discomfort and they were like "Mm, yeah no i feel like the discomfort at the end of the day is sometimes an opportunity for your values to evolve i'm not Mm. talking you are eliminating your values and you are doing a 180 Mm-hmm. But maybe your values evolve as we humans evolve over the years. I mean, I think back to my values that I probably held 10 years ago when I was in my teenage years, and they're very different than oh, the values so I had. Mm-hmm. They evolved, and it wasn't just a 180 switch overnight. And so don't see that discomfort as I must now flip from black to white because there's a lot of gray and there's a lot of gray to wade through and to evolve through on your values in both directions, in all directions. So having the diverse conversations, surrounding yourself with knowledge, like listen to that discomfort because it might be saying I'm uncomfortable, but I'm willing to learn and I'm willing to evolve like and be kind to yourself and recognize that evolution doesn't come overnight that discomfort won't go away overnight. The values that I held 10 years ago that are different than the values I hold now 
That didn't happen overnight. That happened over years of conversations, of learning more about the certain topics. And like with each of those evolutions came more discomfort. And I still Mm -hmm. feel uncomfortable, but I'm willing to accept that that discomfort likely is going to come with some degree of evolution. And I still will hold values that mean a lot to me. So know that they can change. Because I think that's the problem is sometimes people see their values as static. And that can get us into maybe the world in which we have today in which all values feel as though they can't move at all. I was going to say, I just want to clarify something I said earlier. I don't mean to create the impression that values can't change. What I'm saying, I think it's, I think it comes down to a question of semantics. Like for me, a core value is all people have inherent dignity or like all people deserve respect. And so if you make it much, much more specific, I think that's what people call values. But like that's like I'm having trouble expressing that's a good myself. Point, though. I think I, I hear what you're saying, right? which is the values may be. And you're what's deeper. the most fundamental yes. belief that you can break that down to, which Maybe is like, there's a different word than value. And of you're speaking out against limbo. hypocrisy. Yes, that's the yes, that's the biggest thing that drives me crazy. Thank you. All you know, I don't even care where someone sits on the political spectrum. What I'm looking for is consistency of thought, like a consistent application of that. It's impossible to find. And, you know, the reason I'm so steamed about it right now, I'm, I'm realizing is because the activist circles that I run in with people that are supposed to be fighting the same issue I care about are like paradoxically so detrimental to populate to the population we're trying to help and they're so blinded by their own self-righteousness that i they can't even be talked into seeing how they're they're hurting people that they're supposedly out here helping and that what they're doing just boils down to virtue signaling in the highest order i and that's why though virtue signaling is a step towards something better or something yeah. more. I don't know. Like I, I, if you're a person that other people look to, yeah, maybe it's a. Then it can be a positive thing to be like, yes, this is my opinion, and I want people to know that I feel this way. But there are other examples. I don't know. And like, and to me, what I'm realizing it boils down to is just like this insane trend towards narcissism and people adopting causes that are fashionable because they want to look like and like for the cause that I work on like I don't even care why you're on the bandwagon I'm just glad you're here let's get to work and I hope that you stay after this becomes not cool anymore Mm -hmm. and this I I think that's been the driving thought behind my conversation like what I've been saying today is at the back of my mind what I keep thinking about are people who will jump from one cause to the next to the next without actually thinking about the people we're fighting for just because they want to be included. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because again, I don't care why you're at the party. I just care that you're here. Let's get to work. Like I can make anyone a good soldier for my cause for some amount of time, but the best soldiers are the ones who are there to stay and who are there for the right reasons, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, I'm, I'm done. I'm, <laughs> Rand is over. Kind of going back a little bit, but staying on a similar topic i think that everybody and especially like medical students and medical professionals are afraid of being wrong and strive for perfection at all times and Mm. 
like I know I well that's because you get smacked when yeah that's because we get in trouble when we're that relates to roller on the hand earlier conversation of Seacom does not do that but it kind of creates that tension when if we're uncomfortable with something or if we're afraid of making a mistake we can back away from the situation because in a lot of our minds doing nothing is better than being wrong and not being perfect and I know something that a lot of I, I know I struggle with and I know a lot of medical adjacent people can struggle with is not in being able to as we said earlier embrace the discomfort and learn from it because in order to embrace discomfort we have to risk not being perfect and that's a really mm-hmm. scary thought to a lot of people mm-hmm. well I'm going to give you the last word on that that's our show because it's now two thirty, <laughs> an hour and eighteen minutes of recording. <laughs> I've sent a few. I'm running late uh, uh, messages to my lab, but that's okay. Matt, Madeline, Riley, Eileen, thanks for being on the show with me today, and thanks for uh, taking the risks that you have taken today to talk, about, to talk about this this topic. I do appreciate it. And what kind of sputum sample would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcuts, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, yeah, sometimes YouTube. Our editors are Maddie Walling and Nick Lynn. <laughs> Good luck. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Fox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. 